Our guest today is a legend. His name is known to most households in America. As a military pilot, he was tasked in 1947 with the job of trying to fly an experimental aircraft faster than the speed of sound. Many were unsure that it could even be done, but it fell to Chuck Yeager to try. His exceptional skill as a pilot and devotion to learning the mechanics of every plane he flew led to his being given the chance to succeed ahead of many, many officers of higher rank. His superior's confidence in him was rewarded when Charles Yeager piloted the Bell X-1 to Mach 1 and beyond. If you've ever visited the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum in Washington, you have seen this very plane, right next to the Wright Brothers Flyer and the Apollo capsule that carried astronauts to the moon. That's where it belongs, of course. With Chuck Yeager at the controls, aviation moved from airplanes into the era of manned rockets. Through hard work and talent, Charles Yeager rose from a private in the Army, whose job it was to maintain airplanes, to a general in the Air Force. Along the way, the program he led at Edwards Air Force Base trained America's astronauts. If you've never read his autobiography, Yeager, we suggest you grab a copy. It is informative and moving, and we like to add, sometimes hilarious. And while you're at it, may we suggest Tom Wolfe's book, The Right Stuff, and the well-regarded film of the same name, for the subplot surrounding our guest today stole the show in both. We've been fortunate to have interviewed many newsmakers for this program over the years, but we've never been more honored than when General Charles Yeager agreed to sit down with us and talk about his life. He generously granted us well over an hour of his time, which we have broken up into three segments, the first of which we air today. It is my great privilege to be here at Grass Valley's Municipal Airport with someone we have always hoped we might one day sit down and have a chance to chat with. It's a true honor to be able to say, welcome to Radio Parallax, General Charles Yeager. Thank you very much, Doug. General, you have numerous accomplishments to your credit. Many of those from later in your career are pretty well known. But I'd like to talk to you today about your World War II experiences. You were trained as a fighter pilot in the Army Air Corps and sent to England. Can we talk about what you young pilots were tasked with in the Air War? Our mission was escorting B-17s and B-24s on long-range missions. And in 1943, before the P-51 came into the picture, the bombers were stuck with P-47s and P-38s, which only had about four hours of endurance. So consequently, the 38 and the 47 could stay with the bombers for two hours and had to turn around and fly back to England, and that's when the German fighters hit the bombers. And when the Mustang came into the picture, we came over there in November 43, the P-51 had eight hours of endurance, which meant that we could stay with the bombers all the way to the target and then take them back to England. It was a big breakthrough for, for escorting bombers and protecting them. And uh, also, it didn't have pressurization, but basically we pressure-breathed oxygen at 35, 36,000 feet. And we had G-suits, and we had lead computing gun sights, things that the German fighter pilots never had in World War II. And actually, that's when even the best of the of the Luftwaffe, say, when the Mustang showed up over Berlin, they knew they'd lost the war. I understand you took part in the first daylight bombing raid on the city of Berlin. Can you tell us about that? When we got over there and started escorting the bombers, 
on March the 4th, 1944, we ended up on the first daylight raid on Berlin. Until that time, the bombers had not hit Berlin. It was a highly protected area. Our mission on that particular day was to escort a, a, a force of B-17s. And what happened, the weather was so bad that they had a recall on the mission. Now, there was one box of 36 B-17 never got the recall, so they pressed on. And the weather was so bad that we ended up uh, only two P-51s were together. Where the other guys were, we we don't know. They, you know, were fooling around in, in very bad weather. And uh, consequently, we found our the only box of bombers that were going to Berlin. We stayed with them. And then uh, over Berlin, when they bombed it and then turned headed back out, the Germans were not flying because the weather was so bad. And one ME-109 had, had gotten up into the where the bombers were and were out to the right about 10 miles from the stream from the box of bombers. And uh, I spotted him. We were flying around 27,000 feet. I spotted him, and it's the first German I ever saw. And I went down, opened up the P-51, picked up speed, and uh, was coming down so fast, I overestimated the speed of the 109. It's the first one I'd ever seen. I had everything wide open. I was going so damn fast. I was, man, it, I was closing up really quick. So I had to chop the power back, pull the airplane up and go across him, and then come back in under him at his speed, and then open up and he blew up. And that's the first airplane I shot out. And I saw, that's the only German I saw, except about five minutes later I saw a Heike 111K down around 15,000 feet and went down. Well, he got in the clouds and we lost him. And the two of us came all the way back by ourselves. Because that, that's just the way, to, the way it was. You had no navigation system, and when you, when you headed home, you headed west. Obviously, that's, that's where England was. And then you crossed. You flew until you thought you were over the English Channel. You let down until you saw water, and then you flew until you hit the coast of England. It really didn't make any difference whether you found your base or not. There were air bases every 10 miles, bomber bases fighter bases, British bases. So if, even if you couldn't find your base because of weather, you, you landed at any base. And your mission the next day began a remarkable series of events. What happened? We took off. I took off a spare. Now what you do, you take each squadron has 16 airplanes. And then two spares take off that have flight integrity. If nobody aborts, you go back to your base. You don't have to go on a mission. And on this particular mission, we had trouble getting the uh, airplane into high blower, and a guy boarded and headed back. So I filled in as the number four guy on green flight, the fourth flight back of flight of four, and was riding all the way in this position until we got down south of Bordeaux, where there was the Falco 190 base, and the bombers were going to hit the base. When I noticed the 190, first 190s, there were three of them behind us and above us, and I called in the flight leader, the bandits, and uh, told him to break. We all broke, and I put me in the lead, and I hit, made a head-on pass with the 190s, and and I got hit with 20 millimeters. It took the prop off, part of the left wing, and 
obviously you you can't stay with the airplane because it's burning. So you jettison the canopy, undo your lap belt, and fall out of the airplane. And uh, then you free fall because you don't want to open your parachute because it had been rumored, but it never happened. Pilots did not shoot pilots in their parachute. It, regardless of what somebody tells you of these rumors, they did not shoot pilots in parachutes. I just free fell from about 18,000 feet until the ground starts rushing at you and then you open your parachute. I, I was probably about a thousand feet above the ground and floated down and swung by a pine sapling, grabbed the top or spring down and stepped on the ground. And uh, then I could hear German trucks and when I was coming down, I could see them moving on the ground. I finally hit the ground, gathered up my parachute and then headed off into the woods get away from the area where I landed. So with Germans all around, what did you do to avoid capture? We had been trained in escape and evasion. Like in England, they'd take us out and drop us in the countryside and say, okay, get back to your base. And then the, the British would try to catch you. It was good training for us. And I moved off probably four or five miles from where I'd hit the ground and then holed up in the brush and stayed there overnight. I had a few wounds in me, but we carried in our survival kit sulfa drugs. Sulfa drug was an antibiotic. I had a hole in my right leg and one up farther, a lot of 20 millimeter flack on my fingers and or hands and feet, and I just sprinkled the, the sulfa powder on where I'd been, was bleeding, and it kept it from infecting. The next day, I heard a guy chopping wood went over, We'd been told, don't ever talk to anybody or approach anybody that doesn't look poor. The woodcutter was cutting wood, and I went up, he was a little bit scared because I had a 45 and, and was in a flying suit and a, and, a, and a jacket, and he couldn't speak English and I couldn't speak French. He knew I was an American pilot because he could see it. He gave me some cheese and sausage and motioned for me to stay where I was, the area, and then he took off. And I moved away about three or 400 yards and hid again. And then he came back with another guy, a doctor spoke English. And he was asked me what I intended doing. Well, I was in occupied France and there were three neutral countries, Sweden, Switzerland, and Spain. Now, the Geneva Convention, if you could get into a neutral country as a warring nation, then you were interned in that country and kept there until the end of the war. And uh, that's that's what the rules. I told the doctor I, I wanted to get into Spain because I knew where I was. I had silk maps of where we flew over. He said, well, it's difficult to move because the Germans are everywhere. And he said, I'll put you in contact with the Maquis, the French resistance fighters, and they'll, they'll take care of you. And he took me to this house. Actually, the guy that owned the house was the mayor of Narok, and his name is Gabriel. He spoke a little bit of English, but not too much. But this doctor who spoke fluent English came back. And then they took me to a, a Russian lady. It was really funny. She had been a white Russian, and when during the uprising in Russia, she moved into France. She was quite wealthy, 
and then the war started. She lived in Paris, so she moved to southern France to Narok and uh, bought a house, castle, you might say. And uh, they took me to her, and she, she, she spoke such perfect English. She she interrogated me, and one of the, one of the things that impressed me, she she asked me, "How old are you?" I said, "20." And he, well, he said, "The Americans running out of men already," and I said, "Well, most fighter pilots are young." She's a cagey old gal, and I had my high school ring on my right hand on my finger. And she said, are you married? And I said, no. She said, aha. He said, you're lying. I said, no, I'm not. Well, why do you wear a ring? I said, that's my high school ring. I took it off, had my name inside. And I said, in America, if I was married, I'd have a ring on my left hand. In your weddings, rings are worn on the right hand. And she really trying to catch me in a, in a lie. Out of a concern that German agents would try and infiltrate the resistance. And rightly so, because it was a very dangerous, a lot of those people got got killed by the Germans. And, and so she okayed me, and then they, that's when they took me to the Maquis, or the French resistance fighters, there were about 20 of them, and I was put in with the group. Very few people spoke English. We moved every every night. We never spent more than one night in a place, and their job was to harass the German troops, blow up railroad trains, you know, and bridges, and things like this. And they received, probably once every week, a couple of canisters dropped out of Halifax's British bombers. They had some kind of communications I could never figure out with, that they had with the British, and they'd, a bomber would come over at night over a certain field and drop a couple thousand-pound canisters that were full of guns, ammunition, counterfeit meat and bread, ration stamps, money, and all these things. And and they would, you know, use all this money and, and stuff like that to, and, and food stamps to uh, replenish their, their food. And they, they try every night they moved, and they uh, would receive plastic explosives for blowing up railroad tra- trains. Something it turns out you were familiar with from your youth back in West Virginia. My father used that yeah. same explosives and the same fuses, mm-hmm. so I was put in charge of cutting fuses for them and, and setting them when they told me how far they had to be away from where the explosion occurred. It was interesting. They had about 20 guys in a group, and they'd steal the cow and beans and cook it in a big pot and eat. And like I say, every night they moved. And how long were you with them? I stayed with them a little over a month. You know, the Germans just could not infiltrate the underground system because there were so damn many of them. They were smart guys. And finally, after about a month, I had my own silk maps. You know, we carried them in our flying suit pockets. And they traced out the route that we had to go through the Pyrenees Mountains, which are about like the high Sierras out here. And uh, we had to go through the Pyrenees Mountains to get into Spain. After about a month of fooling around with them, then they took me south with about four or five other American pilots and gunners and finally turned us loose. And we ended up in Paris. And they gave us a backpack with cheese and bread, and 
we headed out, and it was it was April, May. Snow was about four feet deep in the Pyrenees because they're around nine thousand feet high. And it was it wasn't easy. It was it took took us about four days and nights to get through the Pyrenees, and we had to stay off the roads. And German patrols were running. I think on the fourth day that we were going through, we found this cabin up there's a lot a lot of logging in the Pyrenees, and the way they got the logs from the top of the Pyrenees range of mountains down to the bottom to the rivers was that they built a trough and it had snow on it and they'd get these big logs into the trough and then they'd slide all the way down to the bottom of the hill and go into the river. We found this cabin and Pat, the guy who was the navigator on B-24s, it really made a mistake in that he hung his damn socks outside the cabin to dry. Well, the German patrol, about 200 yards up, were walking out and saw the socks hanging up, and they were just ruthless guys, so they started shooting through the building. There was a window in the back, and Pat went out first, and when he jumped out, he kind of stumbled, and I, I came out and held. He'd been hit in the knee with the rifle bullet. His whole knee was gone, and the only thing holding his, the bottom part of his leg on was that big tenon on the in, inside of the his leg, we were near this trough, and I threw him in the trough and then jumped in after him, and we slid down the hill, you know, about a mile, and finally dumped into the river, and it, it was colder than hell and probably saved his life because he he didn't bleed very much. Yeah. I cut the tenon off, and it bottom part of his leg fell off, and then I put a tourniquet on it and used my shirt to cover up the stunt and tighten it real tight, and we were in snow and ice, from the rest of the night, and he didn't bleed to death. I took him over the hill. It took took all night. I got him on the road, and I heard later that they had repatriated him. The Spanish had released him because he only had one. They cut off his leg to where it was just barely a stump in the, in the hospital. And I never did. I talked to his wife because he died about six months after the war. I talked to his wife, that's all. And she said it was she wouldn't even talk about it because too much pain. We're speaking with General Charles Yeager about his experiences in World War II. Well, General, you got out of occupied France into neutral Spain. What then happened? You're in a neutral country, and there were 1,600 American airmen interned in Spain. Everyone was helped through the Pyrenees by the French. And, and they were very dedicated people. A lot of them had lost their lives. I know I owe my neck to them, and as a lot of all these 1,600 guys that were turned in Spain owed their lives to them, too. And they were wonderful, wonderful people, and still are. And it's this stupid press we have, you know, bad mouth this, bad mouth that, and they tried to form your opinion of other countries. Probably the worst neutral country was Switzerland. That's, that's where Germans put gold. When we went to the Pyrenees and got down to this sort, S-O-R-T, a little small village in Spain, the American consulate had sent up, set up post in, along the border because, hell, they got 1,600 got American. They're, they're pretty thick, so they, they, they could pick them out, take you down to Lerida, south of the border, about 60 miles, and then the American consulate would set you up in a hotel give you money for cl- and buy you clothes, and, and it was, he didn't have to fight or nobody shooting at you. 
and it's a pretty soft life. I guess there was some barter going on for getting you airmen back. Spain had no access to petroleum products, no oil, no wells, no gasoline. Well, and hell, the war's going on. They had no gasoline because Germans took everything in the area. And uh, Americans started running out of little touchy on fighter pilots. And they negotiated with the Spanish to trade them gasoline for the American pilots. They negotiated the deal with the Spanish. Then so many gallons per pilot. Then the Spanish took us in small groups, five or six at a time, down to Gibraltar. And the British flew into Gibraltar and had a base there. And they turned us over to the British at Gibraltar, and then the British flew us back to England. I stayed in Spain well over a month or a month and a half. So when you got back to England, how did you rejoin your squadron? When we came back, we weren't allowed to go back to our base. But here again, the Germans had been trying to infiltrate the system by bringing in blonde-haired German and then try to get into the intelligence system that the Americans had set up in London. And so we were interrogated. We, when they flew us back, they got there and treated us like prisoners until such time as they found out that we were who wow. we said we were. That's only normal and it's, sure. it's only right. I, I stayed about a week in this plush prison, what it was, in a hotel. So they had to send up to my base to get a guy to identify me. So they sent up to my base and got a guy named T.D. that I knew very well. He's a practical joker and things like this. And so he, he came down to London and they brought him in and I, these damn intelligence colonels are all pretty tough old guys and you, you couldn't get away with nothing. And they brought him in and said, you know Jaeger? He looked at him and said, never saw him before in my life. And, and, and they got that colonel, I thought they were going to shoot him. <laughs> and he walked out and you hear him out giggling outside the door and they didn't, they didn't take kindly to that. He, he was a practical joker. Finally, they called him back in. He said, yeah, let's check it. <laughs> Well, General, I understand the rules were firm that evadees were not to go back to combat duty. Rightly so. And many guys, some guys had escaped out of ne- the Netherlands and France, and, and that was the rule. And the reason was that if you were shot down again and captured by the Germans and in, interrogated, you'd compromise the underground system and it'd be a lot of innocent people killed and that that was the reason well i only had what you know nine missions shot down one airplane and i, I didn't want to come on me and this other captain who was with me i was only a flight officer i wasn't even a an officer and see i'd gone through flying school as a as an enlisted man a corporal and then when i got my wings then they made me a flight officer and I, that's Lord and second lieutenant. Well, I raised so much hell with these colonels, and finally they sent me up to a one-star general, and he said, hey, you ruled, you ruled. And said, well, God damn it, I don't want to go home. And I tell you, we raised so much hell, it took a, about a week. Finally, General Idard, the Supreme Allied Commander, he's really a neat, neat guy, called us in just to meet us. He said, why don't you want to go home? I haven't done my job. He said, I've got people shooting themselves in the foot to go home, and I can't understand why you guys don't want to go home. 
he said, I just normally don't see guys like you, but he was real sympathetic. He said, I can't give you permission. He knew the damn invasion was coming in six days. And when the invasion came and all of the, the Maquis or free Frenchmen surfaced as an open army. And so no longer was the reason valid. You're cleared to fly combat. So I went back to my outfit and a really funny incident happened. I went back to my, my squadron and flying brand new P-51Ds. A lot of guys had gotten shot down during the period of time that I was evading in, in Spain and they'd been replaced by new, new pilots who were, weren't, weren't combat experienced. And I was take three of them up with four P-51s and, you know, train them in dogfighting and things like this. And, and on one day, there I was up with three other guys. We had just didn't have drop tanks. We had about internal fuel, which is about four hours. And uh, the major hero, who's our ops officer, called me on the radio and said, what, what's your position? I said, I'm above the base at 25,000 feet. Uh, how much fuel you guys had? Three and a half hours, almost four hours. You got hot guns? Yeah, we flew with hot guns all the time. He said, well, go over to this frequency, contact the air sea rescue that the British run, and there's a B-17 down up off of Helgoland, which is up almost Norway, and they're in a dinghy because the engines all shot up, and they were in this dinghy, and they want you to escort this boat up to pick them up. So I got the guys and we we climbed up to about 10,000 feet and flew for about an hour and then and so we found the dinghy with all these 10 guys aboard and they were all, we buzzed them, hell they were happy as hell that we'd find them. We also had, had crossed the RC rescue boat on the way up there and saw it and we were just circling these guys waiting on the damn boat to get there and I looked up to the northeast near the Helgoland, it's up off of North Germany and Norway, Sweden. And uh, it's a J-188, it was right on the water coming down towards the boat. I looked at him and flipped the gun switches on and, and headed for him. He saw me coming in the 51, he did a 180 and headed back towards Helgoland. And I, it was a J-188, so he only did about 200 miles an hour. Well, I could get up to 400. So I overtook him in about two or three miles and pulled up behind him and boy, blew him all the, he blew all the hell. And then came back to the dinghy and waited and it took about an hour for the boat to get there. And then finally the boat got there and they rescued the guys and they headed back towards England. So we went on back to base. When I got on the ground, I called Major Hero and said, hey, they shot down an airplane. And being you were still under orders not to engage in any combat, I'll but he wasn't too happy about that. Yeah, he said, God damn it, Jaeger, can you do something right? He said, we'll all be court-martialed. I said, bull, you know, it's just, that's just the way it works out. Well, bring your combat film up, which we took at cameras, and fill out an encounter report, and I'll put a guy named Ed Simpson, a captain, who had four airplanes. We'll put his name as a pilot. So that made him an ace? It made him a five. And it was unfortunate because he never enjoyed that status because 
about a week later, got shot down. The invasion came, and he was got shot down. Was with the French underground, and he was fighting as a ground troop with them, and he got killed. General, the, the women airmen of World War II were recently honored by Congress. Your good friend Jackie Cochran was involved with these women. She headed the the WASP in 1942, 43, and 44. The, they were 1,075 women pilots flying everything that we did, but were never allowed to fly combat. And she was head of the WASP and a very talented pilot. And consequently, she was very good you know, he run the campaign for General Eisenhower's presidential run. He was elected, and she, so he's a very close man. And through Jackie Cochran, you would again meet General Eisenhower, sir, when he was ex-president Dwight Eisenhower. I got to know him quite well. He remembered me. I just got back from Vietnam, and General Eisenhower wanted me to brief him on what in the hell was going in Vietnam. I, at that time, I was wing commander, and it was involved in Vietnam and flew missions for coast. Came back and General Eisenhower wanted me to tell him what the hell was going on in Vietnam. He couldn't get any straight poop. So I told him about, you know, what the missions that the guys were flying in 105s, F4s in North Vietnam. And he was interested in it, and we'd been talking about an hour. And then Jackie comes over. She she was kind of a forceful woman. She's coming over. Well, General Eisenhower, did you realize you're talking to a very famous pilot at Brogan Mach 1? And he said, yeah, I've known Chuck for many years. <laughs> and she, she backed off. <laughs> and then when General Eisenhower left, she came over and said, how the hell can you let me make a damn fool of myself like that? I said, you know, I ain't had nothing to do with it. That concludes the first part of our chat with aviation legend, General Charles Yeager. We'll bring you part two later this month. Right now, we need to take a break. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned. <laughs>